But here, on the very rim of known space, justice is a long way away. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Space Game Junkie podcast. I, as always, am your co-host, Brian. Sadly, our usual co-host, Spaz, is under the weather today, so he won't be uh, joining us. Uh, But also joining us is your co-host, Julie. Hey, how you doing? (laughs) Your co-host, Thorsten. Hello, hello. And your co-host, Jacob. Hate. Let me tell you how much I've come to hate you since I began to live. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have no mother, I must scream. Oh, I never played that one. Was a, I never played that one. Played or read. I felt like there was, like there was only one appropriate <laughs> book for this one. Hi. Uh, Ah, oh, that was that was a yes, yes, David. Well, well remembered. That's a as a I have no math and I must scream. Well uh, caught. Is that horror? I'm like I'm trying to remember why I haven't played it. Is it a horror thing or the game? Sort of. Of honestly, the book is more horror than the game. Oh, okay. <laughs> I will not read the book. Uh, friends, we have a couple of guests joining us. Uh, first off, joining us from North Carolina. The founder and lead designer at, okay, is it Arkin or Arson? I should have asked before. Arkin. Arkin. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) The founder and lead developer of Arkin Games, Chris McGelliot Park. Welcome back, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me. And joining us for the first time from Denver, the lead designer and programmer of the, okay, here we go, Ninezol Abyss, the latest expansion for AI War 2, is Willard Davis. Hello. Gentlemen, welcome. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your uh, busy day to talk to us about the continuing, hopefully, success story of AI War Two. Like, how is AI War Two doing? Let's 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 start off there. How is AI War Two doing? Is it doing well for you guys? No, no, oh. not at all. Not even a little. <laughs> what? Oh, I was. I heard rumors about that. I heard murmurings about that. So I wanted to ask. It's it oh it's so it's so good. Why? Oh I'm sorry. We're really Yeah, we're really pleased with how it's turned out. As a game, it's turned out really well. As a um vehicle for employment and uh um you know, being an indie studio, it's uh not successful. But uh that's okay because it um uh you know, we were able to kind of weather that and there's other opportunities that are presenting themselves. So we're all right. Well, that's good. No, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Cause I definitely foremost want Arkin to continue as an entity. Cause you guys, you guys uh, make, we, we talk about your library every time you come on, but you have such a varied library of things and it's all of it's great. Like, I, I always talk about when you come on how much I love the Valley Without Wind games. I love, 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 love those. <laughs> yeah, those right. are an old favorite of mine, too. Yeah. Folks, if you haven't played the A Valley Without Wind games, uh, both of them are great because both of them are very different. So you could play the first one and get a completely different experience than the second one. And they're both great in their own way. <laughs> they really, and they really come are. in a two-pack, actually, yeah. Oh, that's right! I forgot about that. So well, yeah, personally, if I had a, if I had to pick a favorite, it would be a uh, Last Federation. 
Uh, yeah, that is other than the AI War itself. That's our most popular for sure. Not surprised. It's brilliant. You oh, get, thank you. You get to play the Hydra Illuminati with a freaking ca- with a freaking uh, battleship. What's not to love? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what you're playing, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. And it's um, one of my favorite highlights of my career was when uh, Total Biscuit um, did a two part video. Uh, they did like a animated short of him explaining his own playthrough and um, that. Looking at it is on the Steam page. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had to put it there because I was just like, this is amazing because um, I was always such a big fan of Boat Murdered, which is a um, let's play of um, of uh, Dwarf Fortress. And it's one of these things where it's just it's partly the game and it's partly the person who's telling it, the series of people who are telling it. And they're explaining this experience they had that is completely unique to them. And um, when Total Biscuit, of all people, uh, did that same exact sort of thing um, for the last Federation, I was just like, oh, my God, this is this makes my career. <laughs> yeah, the, that that game is 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 great. There hasn't been a why, why hasn't there been a sequel to that one? Question mark. Why hasn't there been a there? A uh, well, we've been busy on AI War 2 almost for six years now, more oh or my less. God. Um, oh my God. Yeah. That, that, you know, in 2013, we did uh, six different products and we had, you know, a game a year or something, or, you know, sometimes two games a year um, for a lot of years there. And then we really got bogged down uh, with AI war too. Um, it was like going back to school to um, learn how to take a lot of stuff to the next level technically and from a design standpoint and otherwise and uh so we we're just emerging from that so um you know i would love to see a spiritual successor at least to um the the last federation in terms of uh you know playing from the shadows and manipulating your environment in a different in, you know in interesting ways and that sort of thing that isn't by technicality drops up to <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's right. But there are so few games that successfully let you manipulate from the shadows like that. Like so many more games are much more in your face, are much much less subtle. <laughs> yeah, I'm not entirely sure why that is because it's not that it's more difficult to do it one way. It feels like momentum and tradition or something. I think I think you're right. I think more people see Master of Orion two and blah 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 and like oh we'll just copy that again. <laughs> yeah great thanks uh that's what i needed another master of Orion too <laughs> thank Yay. you Yay. um <laughs> master of Orion two so good why don't we have a master of Orion three? Oh. Ooh. 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 <laughs> Ooh, burn <laughs> Damn. ow oh that one hurts i've actually never played master of Orion three uh and i'm not sure i ever want to <laughs> yeah I, I didn't either missing out yeah it's like Batman and Robin. I never watched it until my wife was like, this is the one Batman movie I've seen that you haven't. Like, okay, <laughs> fine. I got drunk and watched it, and uh, I still want my time back. <laughs> anyway, uh, AI War 2. Uh, friends, if you're not familiar with AI War 2, at its very basic, it is basically a 4X. Basically. Uh, you're exploring, you're expanding, you're exploiting... 
you're exterminating. But the ways you do these things in AI War 2 is very different from, say, your Master of Orion 2 clone. You know? Let me say the big difference. What was uh, that? Instead of being... Oh. like The big difference, of course, is rather than being just some... Uh, upstart glorious upstart new empire of the stars that just sort of hangs around the place and uh, uh and uh, slowly expands over the galaxy uh the galaxy is kind of already conquered <laughs> and your job is to uh a survive and b try to unconquer it that is uh the titular ai and where it comes from and where it comes in yeah and uh I think my favorite thing about it is the the different way, like because in a lot of games when you explore, you uh, you send a scout. But with this game, you can hack, you know, which is one of my favorite things uh, in this game. There just there is so many different ways to uh, to play this to, to play this game, and uh, it's probably I'm going to be honest, probably one of your most approachable uh, games like this. Because I I'm going to be honest, I did not. Like with AI War One at all, I tried. I really did try, and I just couldn't. My brain melted. Um, but you've done such a good job with the, uh, especially the UI. I love the UI in this game. By the way, thanks. I, that was a big focus for us was um, trying to make it um, more approachable, but no less deep. And um, one of the things that we noticed with the first game in particular was that. There were kind of multiple, you know, stages of, of play for different people. And so um, if you were new to the game, then you're doing things this way. And then once you got a certain amount of knowledge, then it's like, oh, OK, now here's the formula for how I get into advanced play. So I set up these logistical chains and I do all this sort of stuff. And OK, now I have the knowledge. Now I'm able to play on a more advanced level. And we we're kind of like, what if we just took that part as a given? set up the advanced logistical chains for the player to start out with, and then just let everybody get on with the um, the advanced play. And on the one hand, you could look at that as kind of a dumbing down, but I really don't feel like that is a good characterization because when you've got a script that you're following, that's just kind of gatekeeping. You know what I mean? It's not, that's not adding, um, it's adding something you need to learn in order to become an advanced player, but it's not contributing to advanced play. It's just the background of advanced play. So it's keeping people out of advanced play. And then things like scouting, too. Um, in the first day I wore, depending on how you played, you might spend the first five to ten minutes essentially doing kind of a scouting mini game, uh, which is not, I say that pejoratively because that's not, it wasn't designed that way, but that's how people wound up doing it. And so it's like, what if that wasn't possible? What if you couldn't just spend your first few minutes like moving scouts around to just know everything? What if you were forced to either wait or expend a finite resource, the hacking, to uh, find out information so that, um, you know, because for advanced players in the first AI war, um, they would see the entire map you know, by 10, 15 minutes in, except for maybe a few spots. And it was because they were kind of microing around their scouts and doing this other sort of stuff. And so it's just kind of like, what if we just didn't do those things? And what if we just got straight to the advanced play and gave people the tools to actually manage a multi-front war? 
uh, I want I want to add about the user interface. It's uh, a really really well uh, thought out user interface. Uh, there are so many games out there uh, where I have to uh, use different uh, 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 even even different mouse keys to uh, to uh, uh, get uh, into a, a certain situation and uh, or or uh, do something. And here it's it's so streamlined. I, uh, streamlined. I I really love it. It it was very intuitive. I've got to say. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of testing went into that in terms of just having players and everything over the whole uh, six year period here. Well, I think the UI leads to like getting to the like you were saying the the good part of the game, which is to su- making interesting choices because that's really what a game is is making a series of interesting choices. And when when you take all that fluff, um, that's the word I'm going to use anyway, fluff out of the way, that micro that that stuff that people would spend probably too much time on just to do a thing, uh, you can really get right to the heart of, okay, what am I going to work? What am I going to focus on next? Okay. That system has that. I want that. How do I get to that? You know? And, uh, having the shortest amount of time between you having an idea and you implementing that idea for better, for worse, you know, is, <laughs> is, 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 is the goal there, you know, cause then you're able to give it a shot. And, um, if, uh, if it doesn't work, you know that it's you, you don't, you you know, because with a system that has a lot of the, uh, using your word fluff, where there's a lot of little, like, is that a bad strategy or did you execute your strategy poorly or incompetently, you know, and that even that level of uncertainty can be um, kind of crippling for a lot of players where they're like, I don't, I might be doing the right thing, but just be doing it poorly. And that's why I'm losing. Or I might be making like a poor decision, you know? And um, I think a lot of RTS games that get more involved um, run into that sort of trouble. Yeah. Uh, Cause the difference absolutely. between strategy and tactics and this one, this one short circuits some of the tactics and that does actually, you know, alienate some of the player base from the first game, uh, a minority of them, but, but some of them, and this leans more heavily into strategy by, you know, let's not worry too, too much about the tiny, tiny tactics. Let's worry about multi-tiered strategy at a high level. And if you're failing, you know, it's because of your strategy, not because you're a tactical moron, you know, the, the AIs, uh, the, the ship AIs for your own units are really, really good and, um, can handle, you know, probably 70% of situations without much input from you once you get them where you want them to be. And that other 30% does give you room to optimize if you want to, but, um, for anything kind of mid-level play and down, you don't really need to do that. That's a, uh, you know, it's got to be something that's the domain of the expert players. Yeah, that's why I love your game, because, like, I'm more interested in the in the larger scale strategic decisions rather than the minutia of, like, this is why I think paradox games don't work for me anymore, for example, because, like, I want to make the big political, the big moves. I don't want to move this little tiny unit over there. I don't want to move this little well, army over there, you know? What Brian is saying here is he's bad at micro. I am. <laughs> well, it's not that I'm not even, I'm not, I'm not bad at it. I mean, I've done it and I like, if it's there, I'll do it, but I don't want to do it. I don't have the patience for it anymore. 
You know, I'd much rather do the macro. And I think, I think that's where one of the ways your games, your game excels is because you can make these big strategic decisions um, on a variety of, on a variety of fronts. And uh, if you fail, like every time I failed in your game, every time I've gotten my butt handed to me, I've never felt like it's unfair. Like, I was doing well, but not doing well enough. Like, no, I made a mistake and I need to learn. (laughs) Yeah. I think that um, keeping to a, you know, most, it depends, but a lot of strategy games, a lot of the paradox ones in particular are kind of full spectrum. They're, um, they're tactics all the way up to grand strategy, even if they're billed as this grand strategy game. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, In a lot of ways, that's what the first AI war was. Um, but not a, you know, it trended more towards it's its own thing. Um, but when you have a more focused experience, um, like if you're talking tactics, like into the breach or something along those lines where, okay, no strategy, it's just all tactics all the time, you know, or you're talking, um, you know, AI war two, where it's just like, okay, Tactics is there, but you can ignore it until you're really good, or maybe even then. And let's think about strategy in a new way. Um, I feel like that is uh, easier for people to slot into because they're not having to context switch in their mind all the time. You know, It'd be hard to hold in your brain everything that you're doing on several different levels. I think that's one of the reasons like the civilization games work well because um, they don't let any one particular sub element of them get too complicated. And so you kind of operate at one level of thinking the entire time. Um, And that's one reason why I really like Anno 1800 as well. Mm. Until you get into too many islands, then this logistics kind of bothers me. But Anno 1800, like you're kind of thinking in the city builder um, mindset the entire time, even when you're, you know, engaged in a bit of combat or exploration or whatever. And that, that focus um, really made that Anno series click for me for the first time with Anno 1800. It was okay for me before that, but that one, I was like, yeah, they're nailing it. Yeah. I'll agree on that up front. I think 1800 is probably their most approach. I've played like, I tried a bunch of the other ones, but 1800 was the one that really like, Oh, this is why people love these things. (laughs) Yeah. Play it then. Yeah, it's it's quite good. Yeah, I think that there's a a growing trend um, with a lot of design studios um, realizing this sort of thing. I mean, I think you see that even with something like Elden Ring, and you're talking about how that you know cuts out certain you know this you know everybody can talk about how there's certain things that are lost as well, but that's where you can have some interesting end game play and. Um, with AI War 2, we did a lot of that with like DLCs and so forth. And that's what uh, is also happening like with Anno 1800, where they added in like you have as many rabbit holes as you want. Once you've got people onboarded and they can have a fun time with the basics, it doesn't mean you can't go further. Um, but if you try and start people with like the the end crazy content um, version of, of a game, then that's probably not going to onboard as many people. And, and I think, I think you're right. I think a lot of studios, big and small, are realizing more and more how important good onboarding is because there are yeah. so many games out there now 
We are just drowning in them. And if you don't have a good onboarding experience, someone's just going to play another game. It's not like it's not like the 80s or 90s where, OK, this is my game for six months. So I can sp- I can spend hours and hours onboarding. You can't do that anymore. You know? Yeah. It's not even like 2012 or something where with the original value by that wind, it didn't matter. It was a little bit weird or whatever. And we were in the Steam front page for six mu- um, six weeks straight um, on the new releases there, because that's just how long a new release stayed, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's an insane amount of time. Um, and, you know, so it was allowed to be a certain amount weird and a certain amount difficult to get into all that was pretty easy to get into the se- the sequel is easier to get into but um but um you know it's just a different mindset for making games uh these days 2012 seems like like six eras ago in video yeah. gaming oh my god i just thought yeah. like, what was happening in 2012 oh my god that was so long ago in video game time <laughs> it is yeah exactly and i mean like um okay, it feels like forever to me but i'm also but it, it's not it's not just you. It is forever because video games move so fast. Faster than ever now, too. Yeah. So fast. Not just design-wise, content-wise. Just they, they 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 started really building up steam in the 90s and they haven't stopped. And it's just no, no. A, a year I think that in, for a while oh we God. had some I think for a while we had some stagnation because everybody was distracted with graphics and what you could do with the new. Yeah. So it was just like same design over and over again. So like the aughts kind of felt that way. Where yeah, like everything was really brown and, yeah. and there's a lot of brown and uh, there are a lot of first person shooters. There wasn't as <laughs> much progression of genres in the aughts and a lot of stuff that had existed in the 90s disappeared. And then we had this explosion in like 2008 to 2010 where suddenly all these dead genres came back. Oh yeah. We can make adventure games and flight simulators again. Oh yeah. Um, you know, we can do something that is markedly different. And I think that kind of speaks to not being so distracted by, you know, just graphics or the technology as it's, you know, progressing. Jacob, we're going to say something. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Cause like, in the nineties, at least for the first part of it, before 3d acceleration, it was like, how weird can we get? How different can we get? And then it was all about graphics and sequels for a while. And and then it's like, okay, well we got the graphics. <laughs> I gotta make. Yeah. So when there's no longer that pressure, it lets you focus on something else, which I mean, in some ways, that's analogous to the onboarding process in modern video games in general of when you don't have all the noise of other things you're trying to like, okay, how do I move again? Like, how do I get around in here? Like, you know, you're not having to learn how to maneuver in a third, uh, well, third or first person shooter or an RTS or four X or whatever. You probably can put your hands on the controller and move around. You know, tutorials still insist they that you do like every tutorial and every modern game. Yeah. The problem is that, that yeah, there's always going to be somebody that this is their first game though, you know, or this is their first four X. And so we have to watch out for that. It's try not to be infantilizing with people, but at the same time, it's like, what if this is their entry point to the genre? Cause that happens. Well, 
you know, I wanted to say it's not my entry point to Forex, but it's only the fourth time. And uh, I found that the tutorials were made it kind of easy as um, as an entry point. And yes, okay, I had to ask Brian a few times when I said, okay, I'm kind of stuck. And it's like a, a forehead slapping moment was when he said, zoom out and kill the other part of the AI. And I said, oh, <laughs> and uh, but I didn't realize I was kind of playing the game wrong until you know Thorsten said well you know you're supposed to go quietly at first and not attract attention and my first thought was oh it's an AI this is like Skynet the first thing I want to do is take it off and have it threaten to smash me and <laughs> I did and I was having a great time <laughs> but you know I wanted to ask you about that and and I won't I'll pronounce it wrong, I'm sure, if I try, but your latest DLC. And I said, well, that's a really unusual kind of a combination of like out of space and a necromancer. And uh, and I wanted to ask you about where the idea came from. The first thing that popped into mind was like Vin Diesel and the Neuromongers. And I said, Wow, that's great. I get to play it's the Lord Marshall. Where did where did the whole idea come from? How did you, did you end up with that? So uh I'm I'm the right person to ask this one because it's my design. Uh it basically occurred because I play multiplayer with a small group that includes my father, and he doesn't like when things are too complicated. So my, I was sitting there trying to figure out what's a, a thing I could add to the game that would be a lot easier for somebody else to play, where they don't need to learn all the details of how the human empire works. And the first iteration of this was you get to play as the anti-AI zombies that you you get, right? Because you've got some ships, like parasiting ships, that will create zombies that will sort of... They will fight for you, right? They're not really under your control. They'll just wander around and act generally helpfully. So I wanted to have something that would let you play as those zombies. And then one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. But that was the original goal was... Yeah, a year later. (laughs) The original goal was, what's a simpler and different take that a player could control in multiplayer mode without interfering with everybody else and without needing to know all the information that everybody else does. And it, it got more complex than that. Like <laughs> he doesn't like it anymore because it's now too complicated. Oh, no. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't know that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm also going through and trying to make some other things that are simple. Like I put together a short, a quick mod where you could play as a different faction to see if that will be entertaining for him. Well, you know, one thing I wanted to congratulate you on, and, I, and it's something that I feel in video games doesn't get enough attention, and that's I really enjoyed the audio part of the game. You know, and the first time I started to play this, and I went to the first system, and I logged on, it was already in the middle of a warfare, and it sounded like war, and I said, yes, I know. There's really no sound in space, but I don't care. It sounded way cool, and so I just sat back, and I said, go, guys! And let them beat the crap out of the AI. <laughs> Thank you. That was a that was a big priority uh, for us. Was trying to 
make it sound better than the first. The first one was okay, but it's really hard to uh, make a space battle that sounds, or any battle, really, but uh, it's sci-fi battle without having high-pitched whines, which really get on people's ears after a while. And yes, exactly. And it, it it's so... Um, it's so difficult. And so a lot of the um, sound samples that I wound up using for the the battle audio are some of them are designed as sci-fi things. Others are actual munitions from like um, <laughs> uh, some like black powder cannons and some other things like that. And then they're altered. So they sound more spacey, essentially. Um, I put them Ooh. through some post-processing to do that. But is that gave them kind of the lower end, like thumps and bass and that sort of thing um, that you really wouldn't have with like a laser. But um, it's so much, so much more pleasing to the ear than anything that I had tried that had lots of high pitches. Because it, it just I literally was getting headaches with my early attempts on hmm. trying to make it sound kind of Star Warsy. It's uh, a lot of those Star Wars noises work really, really well in really short bursts. But they are on screen for a really short amount of time. Well, you know, you never know where someone's going to get a sound from. And I was doing like a radio play for a radio station back before there was such a thing as an internet and dinosaurs roamed the earth. And yes, I'm probably one of the oldest people on the podcast. <laughs> but uh, I was concerned about the sounds. And he said, well, you can do it like like this and he had a star wars sound and he said you know where this came from and i said no where so he takes me outside we go over to the radio station on 10 he cut, takes a big wrench out and he starts banging on the guide wire and i said wow that's mm. great so i really appreciate the work somebody puts into uh the sound in a game yeah good sound design is such an important thing and, you, and if when it's done really well you remember it like I know I'm going to bring up Elite, but that's probably the best thing about that game is the sound, yeah. you know. Um, I watched Master and Commander the other day for the umpteenth time, and I'm always um, I'm always marveling at the sound in that movie. I don't know if you guys have seen Master and Commander, but... I need to. Ugh. I've seen snippets. I think I saw it on an airplane, and so I didn't get the, the proper experience. But. Oh, it is an amazing movie, but the sound ugh, just... The, the 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 cannonballs hitting the 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 deck and whizzing by and oh my god, so so yeah, it's, it's, it's like a lot of games do sound well, but when they do it really well, you remember it, you know, you really remember it. And yeah, your game has, I think your game has really meaty sounds, which I really appreciate because it makes the battles makes the battles feel almost physical, really. Yeah. Part of it also is there's uh, different sounds for when things explode on your planet versus on other planets as well. And of course, oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. So if there's a battle that's happening, um, if you're losing ships um, on a front where you're not looking, let's say you're back at your economic base and you're just kind of um, twiddling around in there, um, you know, getting your economy upgraded or something like that. And there's a war happening on a different planet, then, um, you know, you get some of the computer lady who's like, uh, like, oh, you're being attacked over here. And you can see, obviously, the warnings and stuff. And you're like, eh, we're totally going to win that one. I'm not even going to look. But you'll hear each time one of your ships dies or if each time a significant enemy ship dies, um, you'll hear the explosions as these kind of muted, almost underwater thumps. 
And, um, you know, it's completely, there's no basis in physical reality for that, but it is satisfying. Well, you know, the first time I, okay, the second time I played the game, the first time I failed abysmally and I, I died almost immediately and lost the game. But the second time out, uh, I I played and I wasn't expecting the AI to actually talk to me. And it was like, ooh, it sent tingles down my spine. As to what can I do to it? They make it talk to me again. Yeah, that's a really fun, um, you know, Willard actually uh, programmed in a lot of the uh, specific use cases for when it would say various lines, um, because um, because people found that to be so satisfying that, um, <laughs> you, you know, when it makes sense that it can recognize it just got you or you just got it, I'm going to be back, you know, whatever it is that it's telling you. Um that really was, it, it, it adds a lot of verisimilitude for sure. Well, it really helped me get into the game because, you know, it's like uh, the, the second time I played through, I'm only on the second system. And yes, I ignored the whole scout planets and everything. And it went right for the throat and it threatens to smash me. And somebody worries and the, the, the computer said, oh, your home planet's going to be attacked. So I went back real fast and yelled at the computer, bring it on! <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I do love the quips when, when the AI is taking notice of you. <laughs> They're very enjoyable. <laughs> we had a, um, a lot of Kickstarter backers who had um, um, gotten a, a backer reward that was basically that they could write some um, quips for that. And so we just went and made a big shared um, like Google Doc um, document for that. And you know, they were promised like one, but we were like, you know, just, just write whatever. And we'll, we'll, we'll pick them and, uh, you know, get the voice actors to do it. And, um, the, the ones that make sense. And, uh, so people did that. And there was a wide variety of tone in there, uh, <laughs> from kind of silly in a way that some people felt like it undercut the, uh, the seriousness of the, the situation that, that the game is presenting, uh, but that other people just really liked. And so we kind of had to go back in and figure out where that dividing line was, where most people felt like, ah, this is funny or threatening, but in a thematic way. And this is like too, too, this is like Marvel MCU quippy or something. And so there's a setting under audio uh, that's enable uh, like the funny uh, AI hey. taunts, basically. Hey, and what? uh there's a, yeah. oh my God. there's a setting for that. And so, <laughs> so there it, it, it gets a certain amount funny without that, but it won't cross a certain line. And then if you turn that setting on, then there's these other ones that are, are sometimes they're just, you have to be the, uh, the right personality to enjoy those, which I, I am, I enjoy all of them. But uh, some people who are like really in the mood of like, I'm fighting for the flash of humanity. They're like, I don't want it to like be too funny at me. <laughs> that's amazing that that's an option. <laughs> yeah. So we're now in the third DLC, the, the, okay. Nine abyss. So when when you're doing a DLC, did you was this part of a larger plan or did this just grow out of something like some side work that was happening in the game? Like how how does a DLC come about for this game, and how did this DLC come about for this game? 
It varies a lot. Um, for the first DLC, you could kind of, um, Willard has joked, you know, you could call that one instead of the Spire Rises, like Kickstarter stretch goals, you know, like <laughs> that is, you know, pretty much what's in there. But it's also, um, it also had some other stuff to just, you know, it's this themed around escalation in general in the first DLC. So there's a whole bunch of new turrets and other things. It's just kind of the first DLC of any strategy game generally fills in whatever sort of gaps there are um, that is that players are perceiving. So um, democracy, one of the um, members of our um, community at the time and, and then uh, dev team on DLC three, he'd come up with like, I don't even know, like 18 different turrets that he was like, yeah, this is what you need in order to have the same, like complete variety of turrets that you have of ships. This is what you would need to complete it. It's like, okay, well, I guess let's do them. And so we did. And those went in the first DLC and other kind of things like that. And then with the second DLC, um, the Zenith onslaught, that one, uh, we were kind of just tooling through the different, um, alien races that are in the, uh, AI war universe and the the three big ones are the the spire and the zenith and the ninezel and uh, so we wanted to make the zenith feel different from the spire and feel big and feel threatening and feel like they were taking over the galaxy in a in a exciting way that would make it um you know uh challenging and interesting for people who didn't just want to face off with the AI and um then for the third DLC, um, everybody had been kind of joking about how the, the Ninesel were getting the real short end of the stick with this, with AI War 2, because they just weren't really in the game, even. And they didn't really, you know, they were not really planned to get much. And uh, they were only in the first game a little bit. Um, and so then we went and we just wound up having like, now there's more Ninesel factions than any other, I think. And so that um, kind of retroactively became a little ironic. But the, um, you know, there's different thematic goals and often mechanical goals that you have with each one. Like with uh, the third DLC, we wanted to have, um, since it was kind of coming along with the multiplayer coming out of beta, we wanted to have like helper factions like the necromancer or like the new the the mod that that willard put in with the the uh dark zenith i think it is and um that sort of being able to have those helper factions helps people who have a kind of diverse skill levels in multiplayer um play together um and so that was a mechanical goal that we had and then we had uh i think we had four different people who were designing factions for the third DLC. And I think, I think Willard designed almost all, maybe all of the factions in the second DLC. So it's just kind of a matter of um, picking what everybody was interested in and what, what seemed to resonate the most and then going with that. Cause there's always more ideas than we can possibly implement. And so it's just kind of figuring out where to whittle it down to and what makes a sensible package and then going for that. Yeah, and yeah I, except for a couple of the, except for a couple of the DLC three factions, uh, um, I think every other faction was at least my original design. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
Uh, sorry, go on. No, I was just gonna no, say yeah. I played the um, I played a bit of the, the this new faction. I'm not gonna try to say their name again, and uh, they are very different. You guys were right. They are. You guys weren't kidding when on the store page when you said they're they're different. They're very different, and uh, I was not ready for that. <laughs> I really wasn't ready for how different they are. Yeah, we um we had a lot of testers who were telling us it's their favorite way to play now. Um, but they had been playing it for a long time by the time that got as complicated as it is. And so they were like, Yeah, this is great. This is this is like my way of playing now. I think this is gonna be like the new best way to play the game. And then we brought in a new batch of testers, I think the week before release, and they were like I'm completely lost, I have no idea what I'm doing. So then uh Willard went through and, and really um, wrote a lot of new like helper text and made certain things uh, easier to understand and all that. And then more, you know, once it released, then that that helped as well. With more people coming in, they were they were getting it. But it became much more of a complicated faction than I think any of us had ever intended, in a good way. Oh, in a good way. I I mean, I was enjoying myself, but I was like, whoa, this is very different. Uh, I think we have a question from the chat. I'm not entirely. Okay, I'll read this. I'll read this out. What I want to know, parentheses, and to what extent, parentheses, comp- is how competent players keep track of all the different types of units and interactions with enemy units. It's the big nut I still can't crack. So the answer to that is you're not supposed to. Um, <laughs> that's... So a lot. Of, so there's this. We're, we can talk about barriers to entry with strategy games here uh, again, and this is another big goal of mine with this game. Is so um, if you're new to a new strategy franchise and you're going to start playing, you're at a disadvantage because you haven't memorized. So if you're going to play Age of Empires three, let's say, um, you're at a disadvantage because you don't have all the factions units memorized, but there's fewer enough of them that you can, right? So if you want to play French, which is what I like playing in there, because there's this awesome economy. And so, um, you know, I start playing as French in Age of Empires 3, and I get my, um, you know, few unit combo that I'm going to be using and so forth. And then I run up against the Chinese or the Norse or something for the first time. They've got a bunch of units that I don't know. The first few times I face them, um, I'm at a major disadvantage. But then as I keep playing, then suddenly everything is known to me. And now you've got two tiers of players. You've got the players who already know everything and have this this um, long-term knowledge of you know what everything does exactly. And you've got players who are figuring it out. And if you look at these two groups of players, it's actually, in my opinion a lot more fun to be in the first group when you don't know exactly what's happening, but you're figuring it out as you go and you're like, Oh my God, these, um, the, the Chinese have these, uh, like firearm, uh, things that I've never seen before. Like the French don't have anything like that. How does that, Ooh, that's interesting. I wonder if I could blah, blah. blah. And so you're engaged in a, something that's way more interesting than rote memorization. You're engaged in actually, looking at the problem and actively thinking about it. And with um, AI War 2, the idea is that there's a lot of content 
And whenever you run into a situation, it may be a combination of content that you've never, ever run into, even if you've got 500 hours in the game. And so uh, the hope is that you're in that same sort of headspace where you're like, okay, I don't have this memorized. I'm not supposed to. Um, Let me put on my thinking hat. Let me look at the tooltip that tells me what this thing is. And, hmm... Well, I see its stats. I bet I could counter it with blah, blah, blah. There's an in-game unit encyclopedia that uh, lets you search for things with specific weapon bonuses or um, defensive bonuses, that sort of thing. So if something has low armor or high armor, you could look in the encyclopedia and find, like, what has, you know, low armor or high armor? It even shows you um, which ones are in the game, uh, like the current campaign that you're playing. Uh, versus which ones haven't been discovered yet. So they might be in this campaign, but if they are, you don't know about it, you know. And um, that sort of thing can let you triage so that you're not having to just, like, check every stupid tooltip. There's also, like, a... You can hold, I think, uh, R, I think it is, and then the tooltip will shift around and show you some strengths versus weaknesses. I don't really... That one just gets into straight out bonuses, but um, it's not my favorite way to figure that out. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the general mindset that we want to keep people in because it's when you're still in the process. One of the things I always observed about strategy games was that I had a great time learning them. And then once I truly knew, quote unquote, everything well enough then not only could the AI not keep up, but I also had fallen into a pattern and just did the same thing over and over again. And neither of those two things are interesting. So you have to attack it from both ends of not only does the AI have to be good enough to provide a challenge, but you have to prevent players from falling into a rut. And so, um, you know, and just staying in the learner's mindset is part of that goal. Yeah, I think I think there's a, a phrase for that, uh, the chick parabola, I think it is, where you've played a strategy game enough that you've basically learned its tricks and nothing surprises you anymore. Huh. Yeah, and, a lot of like long-term players of strategy games run into a problem when like, they know the game down to the AI behavior and basically can play, maybe not with minimal effort, but can like pr- play at a level where they cannot lose. Yeah, because they know fundamentally how the game receives and processes things, and because of that, they can make perfect plays essentially. Yep, for sure. And uh, you know that's why I bounced from strategy game to strategy game when I was playing them in the aughts. Um, there were a lot of good strategy games in that decade, and you know they were good for about six months for me, and I would enjoy <laughs> them, and they were great. And then it was like all right, I'm done because there's nothing left to do. We murder the AI and I don't want to play against people because all they want to do is rush. And I would rather have more than 15 minutes of play. Thank you. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, seeing, seeing who's better in a foot race on tactics is not interesting to me. That's why I didn't want to play against other people. Um, And, you know, uh, when you look at certain games like, you know, chess or something, right? Like there's a there's a cost to every move you make, um, you know, costs you one turn. And so um, even when you're playing speed chess, it's not fundamentally different. Like you're not optimizing how well your queen gets across the like that doesn't this not doesn't track, you know, 
So I kept coming back to uh, my time as a kid in chess club and, and, and why I enjoyed playing against other people in that game, but didn't enjoy playing RTSs and other strategy games for some reason against other people. It's like, it's not that they're not competitive. It's the nature of the competition. Like, what are we actually competing on? And it's actions per minute. That's what we're competing on. I don't want to compete on that. Um, if I want to do that, I'll play a, an action game, you know, like a shooter or something. But um, strategy games are often competing on actions per minute as much as they are on actual strategy. And I was like, no, what if, what if we could just keep it at the level of actually competing on strategy? I love that. <laughs> I love that. Cause like, I'm trying to think of all the strategy games I love and, uh, and they, I can still play them today and they surprise me. They can still surprise me. Uh, like here's a might and magic three. I could still play today. Kohan. I could still play today. Cause Oh they, yeah. They, they can still surprise me, you know? Um, but there are a lot of strategy games. It's like, okay, I'm never touching this again. Cause it's like, I'm bored now. <laughs> so, but that's one great thing going back to your game is that it's so varied with the, uh, the map layouts and everything and the factions, like you could always be surprised by this game. I'm never not surprised by this game. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, um, I don't really know of anybody that's, I haven't heard of people falling into a rut with it, which is, which is good. It's certainly possible to get tired of any game, obviously. But um, in terms of just going, oh, yeah, it happens the same way every time. I, I've never, I don't recall ever hearing that complaint. I don't know about you, Willard. Um, I, I don't think I've heard that. And also, if you get bored with that, just turn on random factions. Like, yeah. You could, you could just be like, oh, yeah, give me three random hard factions of this game, and it's going to be totally different. It's just because you don't know what you're going to get. And, and you don't know, know where they're going to be and all that yeah. either. Yeah. When are they going to show up? You you just don't know. Yeah. The positioning of the secondary factions can just utterly obliter- obliterate any sort of continuity between, you know, one you run the same uh, combo like a couple of different times on different map seeds. And it's like, yeah, they were there, but they didn't really do anything. And like, yeah, they were like taking over the whole galaxy. The AI was barely a threat. I was worried about them the whole time. So it's it's all very contextual, which is interesting. So well, you know, oh, good. Sorry. Well, I was just gonna say that when I, I was like I said earlier in the show, my uh, my experience was with four X games was limited, and it wasn't until I started to do the show that I really started to get into four X games. But even so, when I see a new one, I always think, oh my God, the barrier to entry, it's going to be really high. I'm not going to be able to understand this. And I was really pleasantly surprised and I found it, the barrier to entry uh, to be really low. So uh, thank you for that. And also, uh, I'm, I always ask this question, when does it come to switch and where can I contribute to the Kickstarter? <laughs> yeah, it would be great to have this on uh switch just i mean you know we're my wife and kids both uh they all have their switches and i've got one (laughs) as well so we're like a four switch household but um wow yeah yeah i know right but um yeah it's one of those games that just wouldn't there's not enough processing power in the switch unfortunately civ 6 works pretty well on the switch um but 
I, I, it doesn't have the intense background processing that that AI War Two does. That makes sense. I don't. I, I could you could you translate this to a gamepad focused interface? Like, how would you even do that though? I don't think so. Yeah, you'd need to use the touch screen on there. I've um, on a Microsoft Surface, um, you know, with the like pen and touch touch screen on that. I've I've played AI War Two with that, um, and that works pretty well. Um, so, you know, if you use the stylus with the switch, I think that would probably function. Um, but that screen's awfully small if you're doing that. It's such a, <laughs> it's a really small screen. I don't, I don't, I don't think it comes with a stylus. Does it like, not like the 3ds. I don't think it even comes with a stylus. Um, I thought it did. Maybe it doesn't. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember. I thought it did. I don't think, but it, 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 that could just be my memory. <laughs> God, four switches. I'm, I'm, I feel happy to have one. <laughs> well, you know, everybody's got to be able to, you know, play. We had like, uh, you know, Stardew Valley, you know, everybody's going to everybody else's farm, all that sort of thing, you know. So everybody's playing at one time. It's such a good little machine. It re- yeah. It really is an impressive little machine. I don't know. Yeah, I'm hoping that the uh, Steam Deck will be, you know, be something that um, continues to evolve, like their VR has, instead of kind of dying on the vine, like some of their older things did. Yeah, that's that, what I'm a little worried about with the Steam Deck. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, but it's it seems promising. It seems like a Switch successor, sort of, kind of, sort of. I almost got one, and then my wife is like, "You don't go anywhere, and you already yeah. have a Switch." I'm like. Yeah, you're right. I don't need one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you really she's like, you really leave the house. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I still wanted one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're really tempting. I know. I want a second or third generation one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let them let them iron out the bugs in the first one. <laughs> yeah. And, and and the and the switch deck does have touchpads, so technically you could play a game like this, right? With the Oh yeah. With it. Yeah. yeah. So uh so yeah, I I I would have I mean I could not see the playing of this on anything but a laptop though like cuz there's just just so much going on. Like it, I think it'd be hard on a small screen. I think it, yeah. I think I think, I think game, it, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, it actually does the UI minimizes a lot. Um one of the problems that we had with the first uh game um when I so when I originally coded the first game, uh, it was just me, and it was before Arkin existed. And uh, originally, I had coded it um, to use an interface framework that wasn't really built into. It was part of Windows, basically. And um, then later, we ported it to the Unity engine in 2010, and um, so then we kind of translated across the UI to. This is before Unity had their own UI systems. We just put, translated across the sprites. In order to do that, we made it resolution um, dependent. So if you looked at it, at, um, you know, uh, I think what was it? Twelve uh, shoot, twelve eighty by seven something by seven twenty. Uh, then it looked great. If you went up to ten eighty p, which nobody was using back then. Uh, that means very few people were using, then it was very small. And 
gave it a lot of eye strain. And so that was one of the big complaints that we had going to the sequel. And it was, uh, you know, okay, make the, the, the screen resolution independent so that if it's really small or it's really big, it all looks the same. And, uh, that took a lot of work and a lot of time. And one of the ways that I went about testing that for a long time is that I, uh, actually would play the game in this tiny, tiny little, when I was testing, I would play the game in this tiny, tiny little window in my, um, editor. So it was like, uh, I think 500 by 300, something like that. It's smaller than switch resolution is about the size of a switch screen on my, um, screen. And I was like, if I can see it in here and I can read what it says, then I'm accomplishing what I want to on that. And it of course scales down, you know, cause that was equivalent of being like as tiny as I could make it. And, um, you know, if everything was still readable, then, then I was happy. And um, some of the earliest versions of the game, this was before, maybe before early access, maybe just into early access. Some people, uh, this is before some of the styling came in to it. Uh, so it's just kind of flat screens. And you're like, why is this baby's first UI? Like, this is giant. And I was like, whoops, I went a little bit too far. And so I put in a little scaling thing so you could... Uh, and we settled on like 0.8 of what I had been doing. So it's, you know, you have to kind of squint if you have it on that screen there, but you can scale it back up to like 1.0 or higher than one so that you can see it on like absurdly tiny screens. Um, but uh, it's unusually flexible because of that. A lot of that, again, just comes down to where, um, you know, historical player feedback had been and the, the problems we were trying to solve in this specific sequel, you know, because any sequel is generally speaking kind of a response to the first title in the series. And, and, uh, and, and you said most of the players from the first game are happy with the, uh, happy with the second one, not all of them, but most of them. I think so. Yeah. It seems to be, um, you know, that they like it for different reasons. Um, we have a large, large number of people who like the second game and they're like, I, I bought the first game and I really wanted to like it. And I was happy to support you, but I just couldn't get into it. But I love the second one. And so we're like, OK, you know, that that right there is the the most gratifying response. Um, and for the other people who were like, yeah, I like both games, like one doesn't replace the other. They're just they're just different. And that's also really satisfying. There's some people who are like, oh, the first game had all this logistics stuff that I really, really liked. I really miss doing all those things I'm like, yeah, that's the stuff that kept everybody else out, though, you know, and <laughs> um, yeah. And they're like, yeah, but that's what was AI war to me. And I was like, yeah, OK, I get it. Yep. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask was uh, what um, to both or either one of you is kind of what interests you in developing 4X games in the first place as opposed to uh, something else? Willard, why don't you go? Sure. So this was the first game that I've ever worked on. Um, I ran across a kick, the Kickstarter for this game while I was working my, my previous job. And it was like, oh, this sounds like a fun project. I, I like, um, I, I've always really liked RTSs. Uh, you know, back for the original StarCraft is one of my favorite games ever. And 
I just sort of I when it when I heard about the Kickstarter, I backed it and then went and bought the first game and so oh this is really cool. So basically in terms of from a game development point of view, this is all I've ever known. Um I'm looking forward to making other things. But you know, why why this? Because that's what Chris was working on and that's what I got Shanghai into. The uh, you know, for me, I um I started out with the original AI war. It was it was kind of a side project. Um, it was a similar situation um, to how Willard made the necromancer for his dad. Um, my dad and um, his brother and I and um, one of my uncle's friends as well. We had like a, a long running, like either three or four some uh, strategy session that we would do, you know, pretty much weekly or twice a week um, for about a decade there uh, from when I was in high school through college and then afterwards um kind of ended once uh i had kids and just you know that that got to my uncle and my dad still play but now they play vr games but at any rate back then uh this was pre-kids for me it was like um you know uh i was interested in being a novelist i wasn't really interested in being a game developer but it was a certainly a, a lifelong hobby of mine i've always um, done a lot of modding and done a lot of game programming and so forth. And then I worked as a programmer as a day job um, uh, that I that I really enjoyed as well. But um, I was working on a puzzle game sort of thing. It's kind of a Load Runner clone, uh, sort of, but flipped to be top down instead of uh, side view. But uh, that eventually became um, Shattered Haven, which is Arkin's by far worst reviewed title ever <laughs> and i thought that was uh good that we that actually came out in 2012 um but i was working on that in 28 2008 mainly and i thought that was like my main thing and i was like oh you know we we don't there's not a strategy game for us to play we've we've run the six month cycle we're bored of the ones we've got right now we murder the computer in the game that we're currently playing uh, and my dad and i were just kind of talking on fourth of july um in 2008 about like you know what our ideal strategy game would be like that we would actually play and then they just kind of sat there for a while and then in november of 2008 i was like okay why don't i just actually take a break from the other one i'm working on and i'll just do this little side thing and you know then that became the thing that we were playing uh every uh weekend then after that and it went through a bunch of iterations before it became what was later AI war. And that came out in mid 2009. And, um, suddenly I had a product, suddenly I had a company. Um, and suddenly I was the strategy game guy and I was like, Oh no, I don't want to be the strategy game guy. Uh, I, I love strategy games. I obviously I've had a, a weekly play session for more than a decade of playing them. Like I'm big into strategy games. There's no question, but I like almost every genre, uh, not really sports games terribly much, but pretty much everything else. And so I was like, what can I do next to really just kill that um, typecasting that I can already feel happening? And so we made um, something called Tidalis, which was a really interesting um, puzzle game. It made a number of errors in trying to market that one, made it look really casual um, instead of going with a more kind of um, 
kind of hardcore gamer aesthetic. So it had these casual kind of cute visuals and it was like brutally difficult. That's not a good combo. Um, <laughs> and it also um, looked like a match three puzzle game, even though it wasn't because basically when people saw blocks of any sort, then they're like, yeah, yeah, it's a match three game. It's like, no, really it's not like Tetris has blocks, but it's not a match three game either. Um, so that one didn't do all that well in the market, even though um, people loved it. My favorite review was Suck It Bejeweled. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> even that was comparing it to a Match 3 title. And so then it was like, okay, that didn't work. I'm still not going back to strategy games, though, right now. I mean, we were still making A Award DLCs at that point anyway. So it was like 2010 by then. And um, like, okay, uh, well, I also really love like retro platformers. And, you know platformers just aren't around very much there. That's actually not sarcastic because back then that was the case. Now Now it's like, I would never make a platformer because it's like, you can't walk for tripping over those things. But back then it was like, you know, I think that 2d platformers are a dying breed and I would like to breathe a little bit of life back into that. I sure do have fond memories of those from 10 plus years ago. So made one. And then, of course, um, you know, Terraria came around around the same time. Um, but they were they were very different. And um, and then, of course, the whole scene exploded with like everything's platformers now. But uh, yeah. So then. Um, we, I, you know, I've wandered all over the place in terms of the titles that Arkin has made and. um. I really like doing that. I like being able to wander and I like being able to pull from multiple different genres at a time. And I often pull from board game mechanics um, because I find board games to be really inspiring in terms of how tightly designed they are. And uh, yeah, there's a 50 page manual or whatever to start out with, but then it's just all these little pieces and it's, um, so much is happening in your imagination. It, it, it's, it's, it's a special format. And so, um, but yeah, at the same time, there's always been, when a game doesn't have a certain level of, I guess, intellectualism to it, it gets really boring to make. It might be fun to play, but it gets really like, a game that's all like about the tactile um, like, okay, I'll take Super Hot, for example. That's not a very intellectual game, but it's one of my favorite games to play, especially in VR. But in general, it's really fun to play because it's just so tactile, so kinetic. It's really, really fun. It's a first person shooter where time moves when you move. Um, great game. Uh, very challenging. I would have tr- very, very challenging game. Yeah, Sorry. it is. No, it is. And it's, it's a lot of fun, especially in VR. You feel like Neo in the Matrix. It's just the best. Um, I would have trouble making that as a game, not not in the sense that I couldn't do it, but in the sense that I would get pretty bored because when there's not room for player strategy in a certain way, um, the testing gets really, really boring. And so in order to kind of... And by the time the game is done, you don't want to play it. Um, so for me... In order to, I want to be able to enjoy the games I actually work on. And so the only way to do that is for it to have a certain level of complexity to where 
I don't know everything, despite having been around it for however many months or years of making it and been deeply involved in coding it or designing it or whatever, that I still can be surprised by the game. And that kind of requires some strategic thinking, often requires some sort of procedural or parametric content. It's not always required, but it's nice. Um, Because it's otherwise you enjoy everybody else's games, but by the time your own game comes out, you're like, yeah, I know it too well. Like if you spent um, 12 months, you know, playing and making super hot, you would neither think it was hard nor all that original. At that point, you're just like, yeah, uh uh-huh. I know exactly how I could do this with my eyes closed. You know, at that point, everybody else at that point is discovering it for the first time and they're going, wow, this is so difficult. You're like, what? And they're like, this is so original. And you're like, what? And it's like, yeah, it is difficult and original. It's just not to you anymore. And so avoiding that tends to lead me back in the direction of strategy games because I want to be with them going, yeah, you're right. Not, oh, yeah, I remember when I felt that way. Uh, Arca- you know, oh, good. No, go ahead. I was going to say, Archibus brought up uh, Pablo Vega in the chat. He's done the music for all of your games, or almost? That's right. Okay. Yep, everyone. Now, why is, Why can't I buy... Can I buy the soundtracks for these somewhere? Because I don't know if yeah. I... Oh, where, 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 where? Yeah, where, where, where? on uh, Bandcamp and oh, on okay. Apple, uh, Apple, whatever it's called. It's Apple Music Store. They renamed it at some point. I think they might be on Amazon too, but Bandcamp is one of the best places. Okay, I'm gonna get that. <laughs> Julie, what were we gonna say? Well, just that uh, if Chris didn't want anybody to ask this, he shouldn't have put the picture on his website that he did. And uh, since Untitled Goose Game is so popular, I want to know when, in case of emergency, release chicken comes out. <laughs> That yeah, I love chickens. Uh, he's referring to a picture of a chicken with one of my chickens. Uh, that uh, yeah, I've got um, I've got nine chickens and a and a baby chick at the moment. And uh, um, the um, the dinosaurs in general and uh, theropods as a whole are um um very popular around my house. My daughter loves untitled goose game and, and was just all about that for quite a long time. So we actually, I think somebody took it at some point, we had a little uh, goose sitting by our mailbox out of the street for a long time. I think it might just be buried under um, some gardening mulch actually. <laughs> well, the goose. Yes. <laughs> not a real goose, not a little, not a live goose. All right, just to, just to clarify, <laughs> just just like, a statue. The chickens are real. The goose is is fake. <laughs> right, because we, I want to clarify if you didn't accidentally misplace a goose, because misplacing a goose is a it, it's a dangerous thing to do. <laughs> yes, I would think so. <laughs> I still <laughs> comes to, back for revenge. I still need to play that game, Untitled Goose. It is it's, incredibly good. It's it's the right new here. Splinter Cell. Oh. <laughs> Yes. Worst part is you know he's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. He's not actually wrong. It's the, you know it's every spy movie, but you're also a terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I have to play it. Um, so does since we gotta start wrapping up, does this DLC mark the end of uh, of what you got planned for AI War Two, or is there 
more coming? Yep, we are in we're in kind of post-release content, you know, in terms of uh, you know, patches to deal with things and um that come up and you know, there are random things that will occur to one of us, like, you know, Willard um going, ah, my dad wants, you know, a faction to play with, Necromancer got too co- uh, complex. What if we had the um Dark Zenith, you know, and and he made a mod for that since that didn't really um, fit as base game content or um, uh, DLC content. It's like, well, there's a couple of things that we've put out as mods that way. And then the modding community itself is pretty active at this point. So uh, and they're no longer chasing a moving target, which is nice because the um, game design, you know, and content settling down means they can actually just... um, work on their mods and not worry about it breaking, you know, in a few months or something like that. So we're hoping to see a solid, you know, long life for this in the modding community. Um, and it looks like that's on its way to happening. Yeah, that's probably going to be the case. And all the mods are available in the game. It's not steam workshop or something. It's in the game, right? Am I remembering? Yeah. Um, there's a few that are just distributed temporarily, like on our discord channel, there's a modding section, but uh, usually people are just feeling out um, initial content uh, before they are ready to release it. And once they're actually releasing, then um, because they're pretty small, we just package those with the game with permission. And uh, that way um, there's not like something to download or configure. If you're in the latest version of the game, you know, you have the latest version of that mod as well. And it makes it easier for multiplayer connectivity and all that sort of thing. Oh, so it's not like it's downloading it from somewhere else. It just comes with the build. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Most of the mods, even like the total conversions, like uh, there's one total conversion that Puffin is working on. He um, was instrumental in the first uh, DLC and also did a bunch of stuff on the base game. Um, and then um, he's really fond of the original AI War and is one of those who's a bit disaffected by the fact that there's less tactics in the sequel. And so he's made a total conversion mod that is called classic fusion, which basically kind of blends some stuff from the first game in with stuff from the second game. And, um, you know, redefines how it basically everything works and it works a lot more like the first game, but with some of the conveniences of the second game. So it's kind of, it's almost kind of like an alternative sequel in some ways. It's a different interpretation of uh, what a sequel would look like. And um, I think that's expected to release in the next few, in a few months anyway. And um, with that, even with just like literally total conversion of the entire game and all the DLCs, it's like under a megabyte or something, you know, because it's all, it's all code and it's all XML files. So it's just tiny, you know, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. That, the opposite is like the Arma three mod scene. Like I don't know, but I don't know if you played Arma three, but like I, yeah, I, I downloaded it and I played it, and it's fun. It's like, oh look, there's all these mods. I'm gonna subscribe to them. Why am I 500 gigs? <laughs> why am I, why am I out 500 gigs? Oh no, yeah, and that's that's still the art and everything with it. And yeah. in ours, I mean, you can include new art and new new sound and so forth if you want to. The the engine the the modding engine that we're using that I've developed uh, does support that, but there's usually not a reason to because there's so much content already that usually people are like, let me give new 
concepts and new features and new ships or new factions or whatever, uh, or change the balance in a way that I prefer um, rather than let's reskin this as Star Trek or something. Obviously, that would be a, a type of mod that we wouldn't actually distribute. You'd have to get that somewhere else since that would be a copyright issue. But <laughs> um, but, you know, copyright aside, um, you know, we're happy to distribute them. Well, uh, that's great that the game will probably have long legs uh, because of modding. Uh, we, we love modding around here. We're, we're big fans yeah. of any game that allows good mods like free space Two. Oh my God. So, yes. Oh, yes. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping that in, you know, free space Two. it took a while before that really truly kicked in. I mean, that came out in what? 90, 99, well, 2000. It was 99. And then the source code was released in, I think 2002 or 2003. Yeah. And then, yeah, it, it did like mod did start coming off, but it was slow. But now, yeah. like they're they're freaking hitting it. The, they're they're running. They're there. Yes, they're running at full speed. And there are so many good. Oh my god, there are so many good. I I tell people when you're buying free space too, you're not buying just one of the best space games ever made. You're buying a platform for hundreds and hundreds of hours of more content. Uh, because yeah. Of all that. It's, That's what I hope happens eventually with AI War 2. I'd like to see that. About half of the game is open source and ships with the game, so you don't have to go anywhere to find the source. It's just there. Oh, wow. Um, and then the portion that's not open source, um, you know, for the modders who really need it for whatever reason, um, you know, we just give them uh, access to our source control so they can do that. So we have um, probably, like, I don't know, eight different modders who actually contribute code to the closed source part of the game as well as contributing to the open source part as well as the um, their own mods that they're doing. So um, I know Factorio actually does that as well. They've they've got, I think, like 20 different people who, um, you know, contribute some mods to the closed source portion of Factorio. <laughs> so then I have to ask to wrap up, what are you going to do next? <laughs> um we have a cool project um it's in the arkinverse it is um it, it uh yeah there's some there's some interesting options there's a lot of stuff i am actually unable to talk about right now which is exciting in and of itself um but it has a bit of a strategy bent i don't want to set expectations too high in terms of last federation sequels or anything like that but <laughs> that whole um idea of being a, a shadowy agent and um um pulling the strings behind the curtain that sort of thing inside a genre that's um you're not actually playing like you're not playing a 4x while you're in uh, the last federation the the npcs are uh, and you're doing something else <laughs> while they play a 4x you're like manipulating their 4x instead of playing it directly and so there's something kind of in that vein um i'm going to be big into spiritual successors instead of direct sequels i think in the future because uh it's easier to take what you what take what makes sense and have a new concept um that that has 
only what you want it to have without anybody going, oh, but this doesn't have tactics like the first one did, or this isn't, you know, like yeah. some of the people that, you know, or the, the negative uh, baggage of, oh, I couldn't get into AI War 1. Oh, I could get into AI War 2. I'm surprised, you know, like, and even after like 100 people have said it, then the next person's like, I don't know, I couldn't get into AI War 1. I don't know <laughs> that I will be able to in the sequel. It's like, no, seriously, listen to the other 100 people. I just don't know. You know, so if it's a uh, spiritual successor instead of a direct sequel i feel like you have a, lot get a little more, bit of a clean slate and have a lot more freedom that you have a lot more freedom i would think that way yeah that's exactly kind of what, what i'm want. exactly yeah so that's that's kind of where we're headed sweet uh did any did any of the other did anyone else have any other questions before we wrap up anything we didn't cover okay <laughs> Just want to make sure everyone gets their gets their uh, knocks in. Uh, so, gentlemen, Chris and Willard, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your busy day working on this to uh, talk to us about the amazing AI War Two, folks. If you haven't played AI War Two and you have any interest in space strategy games at all, really do yourself a favor. Yes, it's real time, but you can pause. Yes, it's expansive, but it's also very approachable. So. Don't, don't, don't like, or, and yeah, maybe you didn't get day hour one, but <laughs> like we were just saying, but, uh, but day hour two is really something special. And, uh, the expansions just add, they're like true expansions. They're not just like little bits of DLC that add a little thing. They're like true expansions in like the old days, you know? So they're like, they add, they add a lot of stuff, not just a little bit. So, uh, so it's really all great, and you should definitely check out AI War and Arkin's other games like Valley Without Wind and Last Federation. There, I mean, even that Raptor one you did was was something. This <laughs> was really it was something. It was uh, <laughs> it was going to be a lot cooler. People misunderstood what it was going to be. <laughs> can, you, can you still get that one, or is that is yeah, that gone? It's okay. for free. Uh, no, nah, I made it. Yeah, when that bombed, I pulled it from the uh, Steam store, but just I refunded everybody, but um, just made it free for anybody at that point because uh, it was clear that was not going to be a profitable venture. But um, um, but yeah, it's meant to be like a third person 3D roguelike where you play as the Raptor. It's meant to be kind of a spiritual successor to the Sega uh, Jurassic Park games in the 90s. But um, people thought it was going to be Goat Simulator for some reason. They were like, we don't need a dinosaur-themed Goat Simulator. And I'm like, that's what? fine. That's not what this is. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay. Rock, Paper, Shotgun called Shattered uh, Haven a turn-based uh, tactics game as well. It's just like but people no. people get a first impression and get very confused by things sometimes. What even is genres? Yeah. <laughs> what do words mean? <laughs> How do you it speak? It's an animal, therefore it's goat simulator. <laughs> and if it's, it includes an animal that's not a human, that means it's goat simulator. Oh, God. Well, that's going to do it for us today, folks. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Great chat today. Thank you so much for everyone in the chat for being as active as you were. Uh, we're going to have a topic next week. We're not sure what it is yet. Uh, we're going to take a little break from guests to do some topics. Uh, so we don't know what that's going to be yet. We'll uh, put it on. Uh, you'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow with more of classic Fleet Defender. 
Very excited about that. That was a really fun time this morning, so can't wait to get back to that. And uh, we will see you uh, next time, y'all. Have a great day. Be safe, be well. And again, if you haven't already and you can, please, for the love of God or whatever gods you worship, get vaccinated. My God, if 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 because we got to get through this, everyone. We got to get through this, and the best way we can do this is if we're all vaccinated. Uh, so please, please get vaccinated if you haven't already. Uh, and with that, we'll bid you a great day. Have a good one, y'all. Bye bye.